turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 13. Mark 3, verse 13 is where we're starting. We'll read to all the way till uh, verse 19. We are working our way through the gospel of Mark, which is the eyewitness account, not of how to be saved, but is the eyewitness account of someone else saving us. And this is a very precious book for that reason. Mark 3, and we're going to pick it up at verse 13. Mark 3, verse 13. Let's read the word of the Lord. And he, that is Jesus, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As far God's word, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as it is now proclaimed, as it is preached, announced, heralded, I pray that you would uh, give me a fear of you, that I would not stray from your word. I pray that we would give, that you would give each of us a, uh, a heart that treasures your word, that responds to it the way that sheep would respond to the voice of their good shepherd who has already died for their sins. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us, that your spirit would work in each of us to hear and understand and follow and trust your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is it that Christians say that the word of God is complete? We'll say this a lot. You go from church to church, different denomination to denomination, and often there's going to be something called a statement of faith. And even if this church is like nine things that they're going to say, here's what we believe, very often we're going to find something like the, the Bible is the complete word of God. The 66 books of the Bible, no more, no less. Why do we say that? Why is it that it's these 66 books? Why can I trust that these are God's words? Now, I should trust and obey these words if they are the word of God, but how do I know that these are God's words? And how do I know I'm not, I'm not expecting more to come? These books, the Old Testament and the New Testament, are the word of God. And the New Testament, everything from Matthew forward, are the teaching of the apostles. That's what, the, that's what they were, would have been called in the early church. It would have called, been called these things, would have been called the teaching of the apostles. And the apostles are a special kind of prophet. A special kind of prophet to put scripture, the, the final word of God, to put to scripture the final word of God. And the final word of God is Jesus Christ. And so God had a special kind of prophet to put the final word of God into scripture form. When Christ completed our salvation, he appointed 12 apostles to complete the word of God. Our first point is this. New revelation to complete God's word to his renewed people. 
Revelation is God revealing something about himself, telling us something that we would not have otherwise known unless he tells us. New revelation to complete God's word to his renewed people. I wonder if you noticed in this passage, something sounded a little familiar. God is calling together a group of people, and he's called them to a mountain, and he's calling to appoint people in order to give his word to them. What story does this remind us of? When God called his people out of Egypt, he called the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he led them out of Egypt into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he called them to a mountain. And on that mountain, he called them to gather. And when they were there, he called up Moses. And Moses there received the covenant, the words of God's covenant that we, we would summarize those as the law. Some of that covenant was written by the hand of God himself, and it was written on what? Stone. And that would be the Ten Commandments. But Moses received the covenant from God. On behalf of all the people, he received this. And everyone know, everybody knew that Moses was the one to whom God would give this to. He surrounded Moses with all kinds of miracles. When Moses went up on the mountain, God did incredible miracles at that mountain. He made it very clear that Moses was the prophet, that he would give this covenant through. And in that covenant, God promised that it wouldn't be his final word. We have the five books of Moses. God promised, this is not the last thing I'm going to say to you. There's more prophets to come. My words are not yet complete. Moses wouldn't be the final prophet. There would be more prophets to come. And God gave rules to identify those men. Because those people are going to need to know, okay, who's a prophet? Because whatever those words of God are, we need to trust them and obey them, even if it costs us our lives. So it would be important for them to know how to tell whether somebody's a prophet of God or not. And Brother Luke read for us some of those words. Let's, re- let's review those things. Deuteronomy 18, 19 to 20. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I, will resself, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of another God, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So here's the standard that God says. When I send a prophet, I will include things that will prove that this man is a prophet. Miracles or sort of a miraculous prophecy. And to forbid people from speaking presumptuously. Meaning this man thinks, I think God says this, or we'll see if God says it, if it comes true. God attached the death penalty to that. Israel was not to have a prophet who thought he spoke God's words. Only that was sure and proven by miracles. Note in here, it was forbidden to speak prophecies in the name of another God. Note it was also forbidden to speak prophecies in the name of the actual God unless they were truly from God and proven by miracles. Why so serious? 
famous question from a famous movie. Why so serious? The word of God was the voice of their good shepherd. And the word of God is something that we're supposed to follow, even if it doesn't seem wise in our eyes to do so. We're supposed to trust the word of God more than even ourselves. We're supposed to obey the word of God, even if it costs us our life. So therefore, to, to know what is and is not the word of God, words from the Lord, is the most important thing a person could ever know. Notice in the Old Testament, it wasn't enough that it didn't contradict words from God that had already been given. Because these words would be commands. Or these words would be promises. And they would reveal more of who God was and what he would do to save his covenant people. So it was very critical that when God sent a message to his people, there would be no confusion as to whether it was from him or not. The only question is, would the people trust and follow God? Not only did God say to Moses and teach the people that there would be more prophets after Moses, he also prophesied that there would be, there would be a final prophet who would complete the words of God. There would one day be a final prophet who would complete the words of God. And the one, when he came, the word of God would be complete. Luke also read this for us in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. It's Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on that day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my, I, my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This, of course, is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus one day there will be a final word from the Lord. The words of God to his people would be complete. So we know when God formed Israel, Israel would expect a, a, a string, a river of prophets flowing one after the other, more and more from God. When no one could say, the word of God is complete, we need no more, God has told us all we'll need. There would be a time when that is true, but there would be one day a day when there would come a prophet, more than a prophet, the Lord Jesus, but a prophet whom afterwards we would say, the word of God is now complete. The words of God is now, have now been completed. And so here in our passage in Mark, we have the final prophet. We have the final prophet bringing the final covenant the final form of the relationship between God and his people. A relationship that is, that is established by God's own oaths, like a marriage, the new covenant, the final covenant. The final covenant that God's people always looked forward to. And those who died before Jesus came, like Abraham and David and Ruth and Elijah, they were promised that they would be part of this covenant that would one day be completed and so it's not surprising that only after Jesus came, you'd hear words like this, 2 Timothy 3, 14. 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. With these words, the words of the new covenant, the words of the apostles about Jesus, with them, the man of God, the church would be now complete. Now, like when God made a people, when he gave them a covenant through Moses, he gathered them to a mountain. And now, that people is being completed in Jesus. They're being rescued. They're being made new because of Jesus. And so he calls to himself 12 apostles in order to complete his words to his people. And the number 12 is important. Why is the number 12 important? It was the number of the 12 tribes of Israel. It signified Israel being gathered together for a new covenant. And those 12... And those 12, after Christ's death and resurrection to them, Jesus added a final apostle. What was his name? Paul. Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Israelites. And the idea is here, finally, now all nations are being added to Israel, being added to the church. And Paul will say, now that the Gentiles have been added, we need no more apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, this is Paul speaking. Last of all, says Paul, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so we see that the Lord establishing a final covenant completes his words to his people. Let's look at our second point. The apostles were set apart among Christians. They were set apart from among Christians. In verse 14, we see this. And he appointed the 12. Out of all those who followed him, he appointed the 12 who he named apostles. Only these 12 were called apostles. See, Jesus at this point had way more than 12 disciples, right? Crowds followed him. Some believed, some didn't. But even among that crowd, some of whom didn't believe, there were many who really did believe in him. And from those people, he set apart the 12 apostles. Now, what's an apostle? Now, the word apostle is similar to an ambassador. It's similar to an envoy or a spokesman. And what we need to understand is that there is a difference between a citizen and an ambassador. Two different things, right? An ambassador surely is a citizen. Well, well, that's got to be true. But every citizen is not an ambassador. Because citizens are to hear what their king's spokesman says. They are to trust what their king's spokesman says. They are to obey what their king's spokesman say. And they are to share and repeat what their king's spokesman say. But they're not the same as an ambassador or an envoy or a spokesman. Because if all citizens were able to speak on behalf of the king, 
If all the teachings of every citizen were to be taken as the words of their king, there would be great confusion, especially for those who deeply desired to know exactly what the king wanted and exactly what the king promised. And they were set apart. They were set apart publicly. Jesus set them apart at the beginning of his ministry so that no one were to doubt who Jesus' apostles were. If you were an enemy of Jesus during the time of his ministry, and even at the end, even if you doubted everything Jesus did, what you wouldn't doubt was who were his 12 apostles. Remember Peter, by the time of Jesus' arrest and his trial, Peter tried to deny that he was part of Jesus' apostle group, and that didn't work. We know, Peter, you're not fooling anybody. We know Jesus paraded you around for three years. Why? So that we would never need to doubt which promises Jesus made and which ones he didn't make. So we would never need to doubt which commands Jesus gave and which ones he didn't give. Because once we know that Jesus has indeed made a promise to the church, we know that that promise is impossible to fail. Because it is impossible for God to lie. He loves us too much to have a million different promises or rumors of promises floating around the church, the world, and therefore us to sift through all of those things to know which ones we need to entrust our lives to. No, for our sake, he publicly appointed the 12, and then he added Paul later, and he did so to establish and at the establishment of the new covenant, and he did so once for all. If you're going to be building a great building, a large building, the order in which you build that building is important, okay? Where would you put the foundation? Where would you, where would you, where would you put that? At the beginning, the middle, or at the end of that process? Where would you lay the foundation? The beginning. The beginning. Let's read Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to contend, to contend, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We get the same idea in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The foundations laid at the beginning of the church. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. The apostles, those who we would get the New Testament from, and the prophets, those who we'd get the Old Testament from. I wonder if you noticed in this Ephesians passage, if the foundation is the words of God through the prophets and the apostles, if the foundation is those, is those words, what is the cornerstone of that building? What's the most critical stone that brings the whole of God's word, that completes the word of God, that the whole thing, the whole structure rests on? The, what is its focus and its theme? Did you notice? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That brings us to our next point, our third point. The apostles' teaching 
is the Word made flesh. The apostles' teaching is the Word made flesh. I want you to notice in this passage, why is it Jesus gives three reasons as to why he appointed these men? Let's look. And he went up unto the mountain, verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he also appointed the twelve whom, uh, and he appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles. He's, he's going to say, so that, which is our clue. He's giving a reason. So that, number one, they might be with him. Number two, he might send them out to preach. Number three, and to have authority to cast out demons. Let's pick the first one first. Why did he do that? So that they could be with him. Why did they need to be with him? Why wasn't it enough for these men, as the Old Testament prophets, to just get a vision and then tell that vision? I have to make sure not to say tell a vision because it might confuse you. Why wasn't it enough for just them to receive a vision from God, got it, and then pass that vision on to God's people? Why was that not enough? Or from David to get a song from God and then then just pass that song on to the people? Or Moses to get a law from God and then pass that law on to his people. Why were these men, for their ministry, why did they need to be with Jesus? Why did the words of God in the new covenant, the completion of the words from the Lord, why did they have to come from men who were with Jesus for three years? Oh, because he was the message from God. They weren't just relying messages They were witnesses of the message himself. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh. John uh, John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, John 1 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. John, this is John speaking, one of the apostles. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1 has the same message. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the final way which God spoke to complete the words of God. Not simply messages from God. He is the message. Who he is and what he did. He is the gospel. He is our salvation. He is our keeping of the law. He is our punishment. He took our punishment for breaking the law. So if he is the fullness of the word of God, if he is the word of God in flesh, if he is the completion of God's revelation, then the new covenant words, the final covenant words from God would have to come from men who he set apart 
not just to hear from him, but to be with him, to see and to hear and to feel and to, ta- to, to taste his works to save his people. Because the gospel is not obeying Jesus. The gospel is who Jesus is and what he did instead of us. And so the completion of the words of God, the teaching of the apostles, is what they saw. It's who they saw when they were with him. Listen to this from 1 John 1, verse 1 to 4. This is John, one of the apostles speaking. That which was from the beginning. Listen to the language here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and, our, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, New Testament, writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Peter says something very similar in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Dear Christian, Christ is the fullness of the words from God. Your salvation depends not on your life, Your salvation does not even depend on what God does in your lifetime, in the sight of your family and friends. Your salvation depends on what happened 2,000 years ago in the sight of the apostles. What did they see? Who did they see? The man that they were set apart to watch, what did they see him do? He proved he was the Messiah. He proved he was sinless. He was punished and damned by God instead of sinners. He was raised from the dead to prove that. And to prove that whoever believes in him is forgiven and has eternal life. And dear Christian, you will be prone to think that there is more for God to promise. Oh, I need more. Oh, but what more could he promise than he has already done in Christ? It's not that God is stingy and he's just holding back and it's only Christ and nothing more. He gave us everything when he gave us Christ. In him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. It's not that he, if you use the analogy of a a hose with water running through, it's not that after Christ he turned off the tap. It's that with Christ he exhausted everything. He gave himself, he gave everything. He spoke all the words that we would need to know. Not only are you going to be prone to thinking that there's more promises that God should make to you, you're going to be prone to thinking there's more instructions. I need him to tell me to do more things. I need him to pick which job, which house, which marriage, all those sorts of things. No, dear Christian, no. Where God's word has not instructed, you are free. You are free. You don't need to know God's secret plan in order to be blessed by him. You don't need to know his secret plan in order to follow his will or to keep you from danger. No, those are gifts that Jesus paid for with his blood, with his life and his death and his resurrection. They are yours 
You don't need secret messages to get those, those promises. He has promised to never leave you and forsake you. He has promised that everything that happens in your life will be for your good. You don't need to know some secret messages in order to get that. Christ paid for that with his blood. They are yours. They are yours. They are yours. You don't need more promises, and you don't need more commands. You don't need to know more of the future in order to escape danger. That has been promised to you by Christ. Time and time again, in church history, we will find that the church will forget what is an apostle. And the reason is that we will forget how complete the ministry of Christ is. That's the reason we forget what an apostle is, is because we forget how complete the ministry of Christ was. And leaders arise and claim their special ways to get more words from God, special different kinds of prayers to pray. They'll say things like, trust God for things he hasn't promised, and then if you trust them enough, then they will become promises from God if your faith is strong enough. Oh, that is so cruel. He's kinder than that, dear Christian. He's kinder than that. God can do whatever he wants, but we need to be very clear on a number of things. God's never promised that he would give messages to individual Christians. His pattern in the Old Testament and the New is that he gives family meals. Think about the words of God as a meal, as food. He gives family meals. He gives a message to a prophet for the entire church. God has not commanded us to seek messages from him outside of the apostles and prophets. The other thing is that God demands prophets to be proven before you take them seriously. It's not the other way around. I have to take that seriously until it's proven wrong. False. And it's the same level of proof that Jesus performed, which is why the apostles, they could do the same kind of miracles that Jesus did. Read the book of Acts. The other thing that's very clear, although God can do whatever he wants, is there will be no new promises and there will be no new commands. The words of God are complete and they belong to the whole family of God. These people, these men were to be with him because he himself was the message. The word. And they were witnesses of him. But what is it that their message would accomplish? It would deliver us from the kingdom of darkness. That takes us to our fourth point. I can count. Fourth point. The apostles' teaching delivers us from the kingdom of darkness. So he noticed a few reasons why he set them apart, right? To be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He gave these men authority to cast out demons. Now, like Jesus, the apostles were proven by casting out demons. Exorcisms were part of Jesus and the apostles' ministry. Very clear. We've noted a number of times already in Mark is that there were no possessions, no demon possessions in the Old Testament except for King Saul. And so well, how do we explain all these exorcisms and demon possessions in the Gospels? Well, they were signs of a greater reality. God forcing Satan into a fight he never did before and he never wanted to prove that he was the one that could rescue us from the kingdom of darkness. Exorcisms aren't commanded of Christians. Not in the letters to the churches at all. You won't find any, any instructions for how to do it or that you should do it. 
And there's no reason to expect that we would have demon, we would see demons' possessions like we see in the Bible. But it's actually worse than that. It's worse than that because the Bible says very clearly that every single person is born in the kingdom of darkness. We inherit this from Adam. Let's read Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sin and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All. Every single person is in the kingdom of darkness. We all are born that way. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus makes some enemies when he says this, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The point is that all people need to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness. And Christ is the one who rescues us from belonging to the group of God's enemies. How does he do that? He does it through the words of the apostles. Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Whose words about Jesus can rescue somebody from the kingdom of darkness? Whose words about Jesus can rescue somebody from the kingdom of darkness? Derek's words? Not a chance. Your words about Jesus, can they rescue somebody from the dark kingdom of darkness? Not a chance. The apostles' words about Jesus can rescue people from the kingdom of darkness. God has promised it. How do we apply this? Are you afraid of the devil? Are you a Christian who's afraid of what he can do to you, what he will do? If you believe the words of Christ delivered through the apostles, you have been rescued. And you can sing these words given to us by Martin Luther. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The words of Christ delivered through the apostles are enough to rescue you from the kingdom of darkness and to guard you from it. Now, perhaps you're a, a Christian who's not concerned about the devil. Well, you are a fool to think that you can do what he does and not face the same fate as him. That you can ignore the words that Christ delivered through the apostles, you can ignore those words and not end in the same fate as the devil. Temptation to sin, pride, getting, what you getting, getting you to believe things about God that are not in the Bible, those are his weapons. That is what you should fear. Temptation to sin, pride, and believing things that are not in the Bible, those are things that you should fear. And you're a fool to think you can dip your toe into sin and not drown. Now, maybe you are a Christian and you are afraid that God will bring his wrath on you for your sin. 
You're a Christian, but you are aware that you've been guilty of some of the same things Satan has. Things that describe the kingdom of darkness. You've broken the 10th commandment, the 9th, the 8th, the 7th, 6th, the 5th, the 4th, the 3rd, the 2nd, the 1st. Are you rescued from the kingdom of darkness? You've repented of those sins. You trust in Christ. But oh, will I be destroyed along with the kingdom of darkness when Christ returns? Dear Christian, you are redeemed. If you trust in the words that God has given in the word about him, then you are. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Though you struggle with sin, though you fight against it, though you fall and you repent and you turn and you believe, you are redeemed. He promises that the words of Christ delivered through the apostles are enough to rescue you from the kingdom of darkness. Friends, we don't need to speak to the devil. In fact, we're instructed not to. What are we instructed to do? James tells us in James 4 verse 7, to submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We flee from sin. We trust in what is in the word of God. We trust in the promises and we love the commands. That is how the kingdom of Satan is defeated. Not by yelling verses at, at, at him. You don't need to do that. You need to yell those verses at yourself and your fellow Christians. Our fifth, our, uh, our fifth point Our fifth point is this. The apostles' teaching effectually calls all whom God desires. I want you to notice how the passage begins and ends. Look at this. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Let's look at the last verse. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Why Judas? You wonder that? Why did Jesus choose Judas? The man who would betray him. The man who would betray him for a sum of silver. The man who would betray him with a kiss. Why did he do that? First thing we see is that it wasn't an error. Jesus didn't think Judas would be faithful, but got it wrong. Second is, it wasn't a question of being unable to save everyone whom he called. Judas was not one of the ones that Jesus had been given by his father to save and keep. We see this in John 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Very similar in John 17, 12. While I was with them, this is Jesus talking to the Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus didn't lose Judas. He intentionally chose a man who would betray him. And he chose that man as an apostle. Why? That the scripture would be fulfilled. As was prophesied in the Old Testament, the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. One who had dined with him. One who had no reason, no excuse to doubt or question that this man was the Messiah, an eyewitness from the beginning, who had all the evidence, all the testimony, all the eyewitness 
testimony that all the other apostles did, and yet he betrayed him. One of these reasons is that he would know our sorrow. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, we're told. I wonder if your deepest hurt was not physical. Would it be true to say that your deepest pain you've ever felt was inflicted on you by a friend or somebody who you loved, who you thought loved you? This also happened to Jesus, and he is a sympathetic high priest. This was to fulfill Scripture so that he might know our sorrow. It also serves as a warning to Christian leaders, doesn't it? If you are a Christian leader here, or maybe you aspire to be that, do not assume that your little sins are not evidence that you are currently betraying and will one day fantastically betray the Lord and His church. This is a warning to Christian leaders who assume that their little sins or what they would consider little sins don't matter. This is also a comfort to Christians who have been affected by the fall of leaders. The church of Christ will not fail even if one of its leaders does fall and turn out to be a false Christian. The church of Christ endured through Judas's betrayal and in fact thrived through it. And throughout history, there have been many more fantastic betrayals of those who, were, who called themselves Christian leaders. And the church of Christ has endured, and the gates of hell have not overcome it. This is also an answer to a question for us that the Lord knew we would ask. And the question is, is other people who do not believe in the gospel, is it because of a lack of of knowledge? Is it because a lack of information, a lack of evidence, and a lack of proof? Judas's rejection of Christ proves that whoever rejects the gospel does not do so for a lack of evidence. The calling of the twelve was a sign of the power of the gospel. What's going to raise dead souls? The gospel. Which gospel? The one delivered to the apostles. What's going to transfer enemies of God into God's family? The gospel that he delivered through the apostles. What is going to bring forgiveness of sins? The word of Christ delivered through the apostles. And it will always be successful. Because he's promised that it will be successful. It will save all those whom he desires to save. He has promised to build the church. He's not just hoped that it would build. His word never fails. No attempts to save with the gospel will fail. So that means we have no need to try something new if the gospel doesn't seem to be working. What do we do? We continue to share that same gospel. We tell more people. We cast the, the net wider. All those whom he has chosen will hear. They will believe. And that will be enough to save them. And everyone whom the gospel calls, he will keep. Because everyone whom the gospel calls and who has believed is somebody that the Father 
has given to the Son. And he has sworn that he will keep them all. And he will keep them with his word. Dear church, let us cling to the word of Christ. He is the completion of our salvation. He is the completion of God's words to us. He is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I want to close with, um, with these words. How firm a foundation, O saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? Who unto the Savior for refuge have fled? In every condition, in sickness, in health, in poverty's veil, or abounding in wealth, at home and abroad, on the land, on the sea, the Lord, the Almighty, your strength, heir shall be. Fear not, I am with you. O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Throughout all their lifetime, my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And then, when gray hair shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still on my shoulders be born. How firm a foundation, O saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, who unto the Savior for refuge have fled? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ you have completed your salvation of the church. And in Christ you have completed your words to the church, your commands and your promises. Lord, give us the grace to rest in those words, to trust them and to think of them as the greatest treasure. That, Lord, knowing your word, we would obey you even at the cost of our lives knowing that your promises are sure, that every word that you have spoken will not fall void. We pray that you would guard and keep us and that our eyes, our eyes will be fixed, fixed, fixed on Christ, not moving to the left or to the right, fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.